This morning we are talking about Malachi's modern message. This is the second message in the series called Malachi's Modern Message. And, uh, and we'll find as we go through this series that this short little book written 2,400 years ago by a prophet in the Middle East has an awful lot to say to us in 21st century Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He talks about love. He talks about family. He talks about worship and about sacrifice. He talks about the future and hope for the future. He talks about all kinds of things that we still think about today. And, and so by way of review, let me just give you a little bit of a couple highlights from last week. That was the first message in this series. And we talked about how Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it was written about a hundred years after the exiles returned from captivity. The walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, the temple had been rebuilt, Jerusalem was inhabited again, but things weren't all really going very well. Most of the people were poor, the harvests weren't very good, the Messiah still hadn't come, they were still being ruled by the Persian Empire, and faith and faithfulness was on the decline. Things weren't going well politically, things weren't going well economically, and things weren't going well spiritually. And as we progress through this message of Malachi, we'll find out that the people were blaming God for all this. By and large, most of the people were blaming God for their situation. The people were mistaken. God had been merciful to them. He had disciplined them in mercy, and he had shown them love. And, and so Malachi appears into this situation with this message from God. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord through Malachi. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And in this word of the Lord, God is going to speak to his people again. There is a word of the Lord for them in their situation. And you may feel sometimes like things aren't going well, uh, you know, uh, in government, on the federal, state, or local level, or maybe things aren't going well in society, or maybe you might feel like things aren't going well in your life situation. But God says there is a word of the Lord for today. There's a word of the Lord for our culture, there's a word of the Lord for us as a people, and there's a word of the Lord for you in your specific situation. The scriptures are alive with the Spirit of God, and they apply to our situations today, and they speak to us today. And, and so now as we progress through Malachi, we're going to see that God is going to confront the Israelites of that day. And the message that Malachi brings is much like the messages that a lot of the other prophets bring. However, his style is a lot different. The other prophets, would, they were just very direct. You know, they'd say, here's your sin, this is what you did, this is why it's sin, and this is how God feels about it, now repent, turn from that. But Malachi's style is a little bit different. In Malachi, it looks like God wants to sit across the table from his children and have a conversation. How many of you have ever sat across the table from a rebellious, obstinate, stubborn teenager to talk with them about their behavior. All right, a few of you, all right. How many of you have been that obstinate, stubborn teenager who was on that side of the table? All right, so this is a picture of God sitting down to have a conversation with his children. And so 
We'll see that God may, will, will make a statement about something. There's several things he wants to talk with them about. And he'll make this statement, something that he knows is going to get a response from them. And so they will then respond, usually with this attitude that says, God, what are you talking about? How is what you just said true? And then God will respond again, showing them how what he just said is, in fact, true. And so in love, he's calling them to consider their ways and to reform their actions. So now today, we're going to look at the first conversation that God has with them in the book of Malachi. It's a conversation that he wants to have with them about his love. So we're titling this message this morning, Malachi's Message of Love. Malachi's Message of Love. And it's found in the first chapter of Malachi, verses 2 through 5. So let's read this together, and we'll get a sense for the whole passage, and then we'll come back and unpack it together. Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Would you bow in prayer with me over the word? God, thank you so much for your word, God, and we pray that you would open our hearts, God, to hear it, God, open our eyes to see it, God, and do what you will in our hearts this morning, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. All right. I have loved you says the Lord. The beginning part of verse 2, God says to them, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, wow, that is an amazing way for God to start a conversation with you. I mean, what a way for God to begin a conversation, right? I have loved you, and that's awesome for the God of the universe to look at you and say, I love you. That's amazing. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago, as we were about to have a prayer time, I shared a dream that I believe that God had given me one time. And the dream went kind of like this. You know, I was just me there and, and Jesus, and he just turned and looked at me in the eye and said, I love you. And, and in that moment, in my dream, my heart melted. And uh, I shared that with you that day to encourage you as we were about to go to a prayer time that no matter what you're going through, God loves you. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. God loves you. But what I didn't share with you that day was why my heart melted like that, why my heart was so powerfully moved that way. And the reason was this. In that dream, I was intensely aware of the fact that I had not done anything at all to earn or deserve his love. I was intensely aware of the idea that here's Jesus, and he's pure and holy and righteous and powerful and awesome and wonderful and beautiful, and I was none of those things. Yet he looks at me and says, I love you. You know, can I tell you, when God looks at you and says, I love you, when you read in the scriptures, you know, and, and the spirit takes something from there and says, I love you, you read in the scriptures that God says, I love you. Can I tell you, you didn't earn or deserve any of that love. 
I mean, God doesn't love you. He doesn't love me because of stuff that, that we did. All right, God doesn't love us because, you know, we're so gifted. I mean, it's not like God, you know, looks over here and says, wow, you know, he can dunk a basketball. I, I, I really love that. You know, or, wow, that guy can hit a home run. You know, I, I really love him for hitting that home run. Or, or that guy, he bowled 300. You know, I really got to get to know them. It's not like that. God is a God who spoke the world into being. He's really not impressed with, that, with our giftedness. And, and it's really not because of our intelligence either. Anyone here with an IQ of 160? It's not like God says, look at that guy. You know, he's got an IQ of 160. Look at her. She's got an IQ of 160. Gabriel, go make an appointment with me because there's some things I want to ask him. I mean, it's not like God over here comes down, looks at Jill and says, you can do quadratic equations? Oh my God, I've been wondering about that. Could, could you explain it to me? I mean, there's nothing that we know that God needs us to explain to him. And there's nothing that we know that, that he doesn't know. God's really not impressed with our intelligence. And, uh, you know, sometimes we pray that way, right? Like there's some things that God doesn't know. You know, these prayers that go kind of like this. You know, hey, God, uh, here I am. Uh, my name's Paul. Remember me? And uh, um, I live in Lancaster. And, you know, um, I know you're really busy. But, uh, and you may have forgotten this, or maybe you lost a file somewhere. But I just want to let you know about this situation, you know. And uh, God knows everything that's going on in your life. And it is good. He says bring all of those things to him, right? Cast all of your cares on the Lord because he cares for you, right? But as you do, don't approach him like he doesn't know about it. Instead, approach him like Jesus said, before you even ask your father anything, he knows what you need. It's not because we're so intelligent that God loves us. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not because of my good looks. I thought I'd get a rousing amen on that. I really did. I thought the whole crowd was like, amen, right? I'm pretty sure. I mean, God's not looking at all this and go, wow, look at that specimen. Right? And, uh, and even if you feel like you work out every day and you're ripped and all of that, listen, God's not really that impressed. He's all powerful, right? And, and I know it's not because we're so holy that God loves us. It's not like God looked down and said, Look at Paul, he's just so holy. I just love him so much. You know, he's not saying, Well, look at her. She's just so righteous. I love her so much. Uh, he's just so holy. I just love her so much. You know, the Bible paints, the Bible paints a completely different picture, right? It says things like, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It says that he loved us while we were still sinners. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us before we ever did anything good at all. And all through the scriptures, you see this idea. You see God saying, I love you. He says, he says it to Israel. He says it to the church. He said it to the disciples. He says it to the world. He says it to me. He says it to you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God says, I love you. God says, I have loved you. And you know, if you've lived in a world where love is kind of doled out on a merit-based system, you know, or love is used as a manipulative tool to get you to behave in a certain way, please know that God isn't like that. You know, because I, and I believe this is for someone today who may have been struggling with this idea that I just got to do a few more things to get God to love me. 
Did you know that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more than he loves you right now? You can't do anything to make God love you more than he loves you right now. Now, it may be true that you can do some things to please him. I mean, there's some things that the scriptures say if you do, that'll please him. And there's some things you can do to displease him. But you can't make him love you more than he loves you right now. And so God starts this conversation with the Israelites saying, I have loved you. And I think God would start a conversation with us this morning saying the same thing. I have loved you. Now let's go on. Look at verse 2. I mean, the middle part of verse 2. God says, I have loved you. And it says, but you ask, how have you loved us? This is the people's response to God. All right? They're sitting across the table, and God says, I have loved you. And the people, this is kind of an incredulous response. Well, well how have you loved us? And it's, and it's really kind of a rude, sarcastic response. It's like they put their hands on their hips and put a stink face on and say, God, what are you talking about? How have you loved us? <laughs> you know, it's like they've crossed their arms and put a stink face on and said, what? God, what are you talking about? How have you loved us? You know, it's like, you know, they hear this and they just rolled their eyes and said, okay, God, whatever, Right? Don't ever say whatever to God. <laughs> Just a word of advice. And you know, there's a lot of attitude in this question. How have you loved us? There's a, lot, there's a lot of bad attitude. They're suspicious of God's love. They doubt that God really loves them. And what they're saying is, you know, it doesn't seem like you love us. It doesn't feel like you love us. They're looking around at their situation and saying, I, I don't see any love. Show me the evidence, God. And it's like they're, they're turning to God across this table and saying, you know, if you loved us, why are we so poor? If you loved us, why did the locusts eat half of our crops? If you loved us, why are the Persians still ruling over us and taking so much of our money in taxes? If you loved us, why hasn't the Messiah come? If you loved us, why is life so difficult? Why can't we get ahead? God, if you really loved us, why aren't our lives better than they are? And this very question is revealing something that's wrong in their hearts. They misunderstand God's love. They, they misinterpret God's loving discipline as a lack of love. And they're equating God's love with material blessings. And the idea goes like this. You know, if I'm healthy and wealthy and everything is going great, then that shows me that God loves me. You know, but if I'm not healthy for some period of time or I'm not wealthy or as wealthy as I think I should be, you know, or I'm, I'm experiencing some trials and, and troubles and difficulties, then I don't know if God loves me, or I'm questioning if God really loves me, or questioning the depth of his love for me. And if we interpret God's love this way, we will start to ask all of the same questions that the Israelites ask. We'll be turning to God, saying, you know, God, if you loved me, how could this happen? God, if you loved me, how could that have happened? If you loved me, you know, my life would be better. God, if you loved me, I'd have a better paycheck, God. If you love me, how could that person have died? God, if you love me, how come I struggle so much? God how, God, how have you loved me? And if you equate God's love to the possession of health and wealth and blessings, then you'll always be asking these questions. You'll always be questioning the depth of God's love for you. Always be suspicious of God. 
And eventually, you do the same thing that the Israelites end up doing. Just throw up your hands and say, you know, what's the use? What use is faithfulness? What use is spirituality? And it's a very short-sighted view of spirituality, a very world-centered view of spirituality. If it, if it's, if it doesn't give me something for right now, then what use is it? It's a view that ignores eternity, that ignores a God in eternity who says, I will wipe every tear from your eye. It ignores a God who will embrace you in eternity and says, and say, come, enter into the joy of your Lord forever and ever. All right, every time something goes wrong or something doesn't go how you wanted it to do, don't be that child that complains to God. God, my life is just so awful and miserable. God, there's something wrong with with what's happening here, God. You know, in the Psalms, you can see over and over again, David, some of the other Psalms, they would bring what's happening in their life to God. And that's good and appropriate. If stuff is happening in your life that is just not good, you can bring it to God and, and, and just unburden your soul to him. That's okay. But you'll see in nearly every psalm where that happens, the psalmist will end with some statement like this, that some statement of faith that says, you know, I know God has heard me. I know God's working in my life. He's going to bring this around. He's going to do something in my life. They all end that way. And so when you bring stuff to God, stuff is happening in your life, and you bring it to him, and you, and, and you, you lay it out before him, that's good, and you need to end with a, some type of statement of faith that, God, I'm just looking for you to work in this. I believe you're, you're working all things for my good, right? Because what happens if, if you don't do that, if you just complain, 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 it ends up charging God with wrongdoing. You know, but when you lay it before him, God is big enough to take that, and then you say, but God, I know you're working in my life. That ends up being a statement of faith. God says to them, I have loved you. And the people answer back, oh yeah, God, well, how have you loved us? Now let's begin to look at God's response to that. Beginning with the end of verse 2. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now stop there for a minute. Now, God's talking again, right? He's talking to his rebellious child across the table, and he says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, to our 21st century minds, this can sound difficult. I mean, and some people struggle with this idea. After all, I mean, how can God hate anyone? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that God loves everyone? Doesn't the Bible say that God is love, right? And if that's true, how can he say Esau I have hated. Now, that's a fair question, and, and there's a good answer for it. And I'm going to tell you right up front, it's not that God is some type of willy-nilly, you know, going around going, you know, well, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, I, I don't like your hair, I don't, you know, I love you here, and, and so forth. It's not like God is doing that, okay? He's not like us that way. But what's happening is something that is cultural here. In that culture, it was common that one son would inherit the estate. And usually that was the oldest son. And sometimes it wasn't. If for some reason the oldest son was a drunkard or was lazy or, or couldn't take care of, of the family, um, a father could designate another son to inherit the estate. But most times it was the oldest son. And the legal terminology that was used for that, they would go to the city gates and he would say, this son I have loved. 
And people would be hearing that and go, oh, he's loved this son, he's hated that son. And that was the legal terminology that was used when they designated one son as inheriting the estate. And there came responsibility with that as well. That son would have to take care of any widows and unmarried uh, women, just make sure everybody was taken care of. Now, that didn't mean that fathers of those days hated all of their other children. All right? They loved their children just like you love their chil- your children as well. And what would often happen is that then those fathers, when the time was right, they would give gifts to their other children and uh, set them up so that they could be successful in life and have a good life as well. They didn't hate their children. That was just the legal terminology that was used. And God is using something that they understand, this legal terminology, to express something to them. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? And he's reminding them of their history. He's reminding them that, that God made a covenant with their forefather Abraham. And God would bless him and, and make his descendants numerous. And through him the Messiah would come. And all nations of the earth would be blessed. And then this covenant was inherited by Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons named Esau and Jacob. And God is saying, you know, it could have been Esau that inherited all of that covenant blessing. But it wasn't. God selected Jacob and his line to inherit the blessing of Abraham. And what that meant for them was that from that time on, all the way up until the coming of the Messiah, they as a people, by virtue of their birthright, would inherit the covenant and all the blessings of Abraham. And Esau's line, the nation of Edom, would be just like any other nation. They didn't enjoy any special covenant relationship with God. And God says, I think kind of incredulously, how have I loved you? I chose you to inherit all of the covenant blessings of Abraham. I delivered you from Egypt. I performed great miracles for you and in in your midst, and I've provided for you over and over again. I've loved you. I've disciplined you with love. I brought you back to this land. I enabled you to rebuild the temple and to rebuild uh, the walls of Jerusalem. He's saying, to this day, I have remained faithful to my covenant with you. All right, so now let's continue on with God's response. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. You know, and as you read this verse and the next two verses, uh, you know, at first it might seem a little confusing, and you kind of want to ask God, why do you keep focusing on Edom? Why do you want Israel to keep focusing on Edom and the Edomites? And so to unpack this, we need to understand just a little bit of historical context. You remember last week, we said that around the year 586, 587 BC, the Babylonians came and they conquered the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed and the walls were destroyed. A lot of people died in battle and died from famine and then uh, the remainder, most of the remainder were taken uh, as captives to the land of Babylon And then the prophet said that that would last for 70 years and then God would bring them back, right? But what we didn't say last week is at the same time that Judah was conquered, the Babylonians conquered the entire Middle East, the city of Tyre and Sidon, Damascus and Syria, and also the Edomites to the east of the Israelites. Their cities were destroyed, their walls torn down, uh, their, their temples torn down as well. And, and, and God is saying, if I hadn't loved you, you would look like the Edomites right now. 
He's saying, you know, you think your situation is bad, and it makes you question whether I love you, but your problem is a matter of perspective. Look at the Edomites. Their country was captured, and to this day it remains a wasteland. Desert animals roam around freely where people used to live and work and play. If I didn't love you, you would look like that. You would look like Edom. And what God wants them to see is this, that however bad they think their situation was, they inherited the covenant of Abraham. God chose them to inherit all of Abraham's blessings. God had loved them and continued to love them. They hadn't earned it, they hadn't deserved it, but God had been merciful to them anyway. And you know, and when you're tempted to feel like because of your situation, you know, you're really wondering whether, whether God loves you or you're, if God really loved you, your situation would be better. You know, sometimes you need, just need to ask God to give you a little bit of perspective. And when you do, you'll often find that your situation could be a lot worse off than it actually is. You'll find that there are mercies, little mercies in your life that maybe you weren't even aware of. And you'll find that if God really gave you what you deserved, and I tell you, that's a prayer I never pray. I never pray, God, give me what I deserve. Because if God, if God really gave you what you deserved, your situation will be a lot worse off than it is. God says, I have loved you by making a covenant with you and by being faithful to that covenant. God has been faithful to you. Now, I want you to see something really awesome in relationship to this that, that applies to us today. And, and after that, we're going to close, all right? Turn to the letter of Galatians chapter 3. That's the letter of Galatians chapter 3. This is, this is really cool and really awesome. This really excites me. Now, some of you are probably wondering, Pastor Paul, you know, how does this New Testament book relate to this Old Testament prophet? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you. So here the Apostle Paul, he's talking with them about the covenant of Abraham and what it means in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let's read it together, starting at verse 7. He says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham. Now jump down to verse 26. He's still talking about the same idea. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That is awesome. I mean, before, we've been talking about how Jacob's line had all of the promises and the love of God expressed to them because of the virtue of their birthright. They were born into the right family. And, and Edom's line and all the other nations of the world didn't enjoy that blessing of Abraham. But now, Paul says, things are different. He's saying something radical. He's saying that through faith in Jesus, we are Abraham's seed. Through faith in Jesus, we are heirs according to the promise. We inherit the blessings of Abraham. We inherit the covenant blessings. In Christ Jesus, 
you are a child of God. And in Christ Jesus, you inherit the love of God towards you. The same love that he had towards Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he has towards you on the basis of faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you were born in North America, in South America, in Asia. You receive God's love on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter if you're short or tall. God loves you. You receive God's love on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exciting. That is something to rejoice over and be humble over and be thankful towards God and, and look at God and say, God, truly, you have loved us. And as we get ready to conclude this morning, I want you to focus, again, just on those first words of God's first conversation to the people of Israel in the book of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Only, I also want you to think about and meditate on their response. How have you loved us? Only, I don't want you to do it with that same rude and sarcastic attitude they did. I want you to ask that question in a humble and thankful way. And in a minute, I'm just going gonna, gonna to play a, a worship video for you. It's going to take about four minutes. And I want to encourage you to spend a little time and ask God, God, show me how you have loved me. Show me in a deeper way how you have loved me. Some of you may want to just close your eyes and meditate as the song plays. Some of you may want to take a piece of paper and write if you journal, if that's one of the things that you do. You know, some of you may want to just worship, lift your hands and worship. You know, whatever you need to do, just meditate as we play this song, asking God the question, show me, God, in a deeper way how you have loved me.